Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, the podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. Today, we're joined again by Ian Rivers. You may remember him from a few short months ago, which were anything but short for him, I'm sure. Ian recently completed an 85-day solo row across the Atlantic Ocean using only the sun and stars and a timepiece to navigate. Nearly three months after departing New York City on Memorial Day, he landed upon the Isles of Scilly off the coast of Southwest England. Ian was our first guest from the UK. He served for 27 years in the British Army with the majority of that time spent in the Special Air Service or SAS. We strongly suggest that if you haven't heard our previous episode with Ian, that you go listen to it first uh, for some great uh, background on him and previewing the row before we get into the post row. We also suggest that if you're moved by these episodes, that you consider supporting Ian in his fundraising efforts. We're going to talk about that a little bit toward the end of the episode. You can also check out his website at rowsentinel.com or go to his Instagram page at rowsentinel to see the storyline of his journey. We're going to link both of those in the RSS feed uh, as well. We caught up with Ian remotely from his home in England. Even when I've been capsized, broken ribs, you know, lost all the power. I was sort of 700 miles from the coast in a, in a really big storm. I, I was never concerned. I just thought, no, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this just yet, but I'll, I'll get Sentinel into in a position where I can point her in the right direction, get going, and then I'll just work it out as I go. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on uh, Sunday night. It's like uh, pretty late over there. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be here, actually, Matt. Uh, yeah, it's um, 10 p.m. or 2200 hours, depending how you want to say it. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, yeah, it's five o'clock here on a Sunday. You're about, you know, five months older from when I last met you, but maybe uh, you tacked on a few more, you know, after being at sea for three months. Yeah, well, I, I like to think uh, five months um, grayer, five months more wrinkles, five months more um, sea spray, and perhaps five months wiser. Oh yeah, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about how much wiser you got. I saw you uh, out uh, riding bikes with our buddy Die the other day. Um, I think we talked about your GS on the first episode, but uh, how good was it to get back into like uh, doing some of the land stuff you enjoy too after the trip? Yeah, it was really good. I think that's probably the first ride I've done since I've been back. You know, so I've, okay. I've been back on dry land now for the best part of seven weeks. And uh, Di dropped me a text. He, he's back in Wales and said, "Do you want to meet up for uh, a ride out?" And because he comes from that part of the uh, the country, he knows the back lanes like the back of his hand. Yeah. So, so we had a, we had a great time whizzing around. I've always wanted to go take a bike trip uh, over there, either. Wales, I've been very briefly, um, or like, you know, up in, uh, up in the Northern part of the, uh, of the Island. Um, I think ever since watching Skyfall, I've always wanted to do that like long windy road, you know, up to uh, Scotland. Yeah. So the, the best roads in the UK, uh, are in Wales, bizarrely and, um, in Scotland. So the, the yeah. two places that you actually want to go in the UK, I've, yeah. I've got the best roads and um they they've created um unfortunately like the the scottish government have uh, created a thing called the nc 500 the north coast 500 uh, which is a 500 mile loop around the northern part of scotland 
which is absolutely fantastic. But before they created that, it was the best time because no one knew about it and you'd be the only biker up there or push biker or in your car. Yeah. Now, because everyone knows about it, he just gets too busy, you know, in, in, in the times, you know, you really need to go sort of like out of season to, to, to maximize the fun up there. Oh yeah. I, uh, well, I would always get lost in Wales because every, every road signs about 50 characters, all consonants. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think that's why Di loves it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cool. Have you had uh, many other uh, like shows, appearances, uh, podcast, TV stuff ever since you landed back at home? Yeah, I've been quite busy actually. Um, uh, I did quite a lot of radio, um, what we call broadsheets over here, like newspapers. You know, which would be sort of like your New York Times type paper, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, lots of um, uh, TV stuff, and uh, I've done a lot of um, sort of like guest speaker type stuff to uh to raise money for charity just to top you know just to finalize raising the money for the two charities i saw on your website it was tracking the other day uh it was about 150 grand so far is there other yeah. stuff not coming through the website too yeah yeah so um i think we're probably gonna have to draw a line under it sort of like the first couple of weeks in december you know so all the i've got three engagements in london in november uh, at various locations and we're quite confident to to get up to five hundred thousand, like you know, by the by the end of um, that period, which which would be fantastic if we do. Yeah, that's a pretty ridiculous fundraising number. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it, it's it's not my number. Someone else came up with it because I thought it was outrageous as well. Like, but um, yeah. you know, we're 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 slowly getting there. We're slowly getting there. Nice. Last time we talked, you were about to uh, take off from New York but the weather kept you uh, kept you over here for a while. How bad was that, you know, just itching to get out and go? And uh, I forget how long exactly you're waiting to take off. Yeah, so I, I originally was planning on going on the, around about the 20th of May, and but the weather window that I was looking, that was kind of forecast for that date never really materialized. Hmm. And in, in fact, the weather got quite bad for the next 10 days. And on the 30th of May, I don't know if you remember in New York, there was quite a big storm that came through. Nothing major, but it, it was quite a big storm for an ocean rower. But the weather broke on the 31st of May, which was Memorial Day. And um, that's what allowed me to escape, although it, it took some escaping, if I'm honest. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I ended up doing an extra sort of like 11 days in New York, which was which is really – I'm glad I did the extra 11 days because I, I met some good people, um, lots of people helped me out, but it, it just gave me that extra time to do the final preparations as well. well. What was that, like checking your food for a tenth time, which I know is my first thing that I would do? No, uh, I probably, I, the food was good, uh, which which uh, I already had, but uh, it allowed me to sort of like get sort of like, sort of things like, which, which I didn't realize I was really gonna enjoy, it was things like beef jerky and mm. pringles and stuff like that so I, i've got loads of little secret stashes and um a thing that we call trail mix which, which is like a like a nut and raisin kind of mix that um i got loads of different flavors and um yeah. they they became sort of like the go-to treat whilst i was uh, rowing across yeah what was the food situation like because you said last time that you had everything dehydrated 
Um, but I'm sure you have to like plan for, you know, some good times, work in some snacks. Do you have any kind of memorable meal while you're out there? Yes. So 80% of my food was, um, dehydrated a bit like a pot noodle where you'd have to put hot water with it and allow it for 30 minutes to rehydrate your needs. And that was on average about 800 calories. And so I'd probably have to have three of those a day. Porridge would be the, the main one at breakfast and, you know, but so Wednesday was always beef jerky day. So that was always beef jerky day. Uh, Saturdays was all, always Pringle day. And the day that I was sort of like fi- feeling a bit low, which was not very often, but I, I thought I deserved a treat. Someone gave me a bucket, which was full of different types of chocolates. So on mm. like special treat day, I, I, I would have like a, a different type of chocolate. When you were leaving New York, uh, we saw the send off on. Uh, sadly, I had to fly out somewhere else, and I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't see the day that you left. But you had the fireboat, the police boat, and the pipes and drums band on the fireboat, and then kind of take us from that send off to then the, your next event is kind of watching the uh, the coast disappear over the horizon, you know, only to reappear three months later at the end of your trip. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I left from Liberty Landings Marina and um, I, I got a call to um, the, the sort of like Marine One. I, I didn't realize how big it was. So I thought they were going to come into the marina and follow me out. But little did I know that Marine One and Marine Two were like huge, big boats. So when I got into the Hudson and uh, turned right and headed towards the Statue of Liberty and the Verrazano Bridge, there was these two... <laughs> humongous fire tenders compared to me in my ocean rowing boat and it was a particularly windy day because the day before was the storm had passed through there was quite a a chop on the the hudson because it was wind against tide the tide was going out but the wind was coming in and it it made the uh, the surface quite choppy for a little boat like my rowing boat but uh, the the police launch was there two um, fire tenders were there and but the the, the, the real sort of like touch that actually brought a tear to my eye, it really did, was the uh, the pipe band. Because they were playing tunes. It was Memorial Day, you know, in America, which is quite poignant because uh, I was obviously I'm a veteran. Yeah. But uh, they, they played me up until I got level with um, the Statue of Liberty. And that's the point where they stopped and just waved me off. And off I went on my own towards the Verrazano Bridge. <clears throat> And, and people thought that's where the row started. But what the first thing I had to do was navigate the Hudson to get out. And it, it's quite a busy river, as you probably know, Matt. And um, there's barges parked in there. The, the tide was ripping. And there's some really big container ships going to Newark that come in as well. So I had yeah. to navigate past all of those before I, um, I even got to the Atlantic. But um, actually finally escaping, um, like I called it the escape of New York because – it took me nearly seven days to break away from the currents and the climatic sort of like conditions of New York to, to get off the continental shelf. It took seven days and, and a lot of hard work for a solo rower. The continental shelf is something that probably I would remember from high school science classes, like the water is, you know, a few hundred feet deep and then all of a sudden it's like several thousand feet deep, right? Is that right? Yeah, so um, when you leave New York, it, it, it's probably like a couple of hundred foot deep, and it's it pretty much constantly that depth. 
it might get to as deep as like 500 feet just as you approach the continental shelf where it drops off but it goes from like 500 feet instantly to almost like 8,000 feet so it, it, it's quite a thing but for me that's good because it was deep water and I also then um, get into what they call the Gulf Stream which is the hot water that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico up past Florida you know and up the coast of America and then tracks under Canada and heads off to the UK and that's what I was I was aiming to try and find once I left New York. Have you ever seen this movie called uh, Last Breath? Did we talk about that? It's no, no, about I these, haven't. Uh, oh my god, it's uh, well, I mean, at points it's like terrifying. It's about the I think they're British guys who are on like a deep sea uh, oil repair rig, so I stay under underwater for like thirty days at a time. They got to go into compression and then like you know at the ocean floor and they're tethered back and. Uh, one of them gets like ripped off his tether. And so he's just laying on the ocean floor and they have to go rescue him. But that's what I think about when I think about like deep ocean, but it's a great, I mean, it's an incredible movie just to think about the lives that these guys lead. But, uh, yeah, I won't spoil the movie. It's a pretty good one. Uh, scary stuff though. Scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. Me not being a water person, uh, extra, like, you know, yeah, don't mind, don't mind me. We talked a bit about navigation too, before you left. So I, like we were following you too. How far off at any one point did you get from your, Oh, we also talked about route versus route. So I don't even remember which one's the right way to say it yet, but how far, how far off did you get at any one point? And what were you know the biggest uh, challenges with the navigation? Yeah. So in navigation terms, obviously I was using celestial navigation, which basically means that I used a thing called a sexton which basically measures the angle between the horizon and the celestial body, i.e. the sun or the stars. And I use an accurate timepiece, you know, like an old sort of like tight watch that was set with to Greenwich Mean Time. And if I knew the angle to the celestial body, which I use mainly the sun and the actual time, I could work out where I was. Mm -hmm. But the, the issue I had was the rowing boat that I was rowing, the ocean rowing boat, bounced around an awful lot. It was never, ever steady, ever and it was more bouncy than it was semi-steady. And it took me a while to learn to take a sight uh, from between the horizon and the special body because I was bouncing around so much. And effectively what I needed was what I call a following sea, which would pick Sentinel up, the, the rowing boat, and it would almost surf down the wave. But when it was at the top of the wave, it was incredibly stable for sort of like two, maybe three seconds. And in that time, I would take a sight and to start with, I was probably 10 miles, give or take, um, accuracy, uh, nautical miles that is, which is slightly bigger than a normal mile. But by the time I tuned into it, I, I'd get my, my sort of like navigation down to about a mile, maybe a mile and a half. And I, w I would never actually know that because I never had a reference or a GPS to compare it against. But the, uh, the support team back in the UK would... Although they wouldn't tell me whether I was accurate, they would say I was really close to where I thought I was, but they yeah. would never actually tell me where I was. <clears throat> and okay. it was all part—it was all part of the game and the fun that we had. And it, it, it was quite um, liberating, Matt. Really, um, not really knowing where you was, but you knew where you was. And all I had to do was generally head east. And as I sort of like got halfway across, I just had to add a bit of north to that because obviously New York is probably about 10 degrees 
in sort of like longitude south of the UK. So at some point I had to head north a little bit. And I, it's what I call big hand navigation. You don't really need to know exactly where you are because there's nothing to bump into because it's just water around you. And um, so, so most of the time I just let mother nature guide me. So sometimes I headed a bit north because that's the way the wind and the waves were. Sometimes I headed a bit of south, but generally east. You said that you would maybe go for a long time without seeing the sun while you're out there. And if you're using it as your primary navigation, you just kind of keep your last fix and keep going until it comes back out. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly it, man. So, uh, I mean, there were times where I wouldn't get a second fix for like 10 days because it was cloudy, it was misty, there were storms, or it's just too rough to take a sight. And I, I called it like circles of uncertainty. So when I, I took my fix and knew roughly where I was within a mile, so my circle of uncertainty was really, really small. But um, then I would be down to what, you, what I call dead reckoning. So I'd go on a bearing that day. I'd, I'd guesstimate the distance I went through the water and just drew, draw that track on the chart. So after 10 days, my circle of uncertainty had gone from like one to two miles to possibly up to 30 miles because of the errors that were built in each day. And then when I get a fix, uh, I was never too far away, and then my circles of uncertainty come back down to one to two nautical miles, and off I go again. And it, it was I found it quite liberating, the fact that it didn't really bother me, that I didn't know exactly where I was. And But the real test was I had to find this small archipelago of islands off the UK called the Scilly Isles. And they're about two and a half miles across. And I had to find them um, just using celestial navigation, having left New York. And it was it was about 3,100 nautical miles if, if I'd gone in a straight line from New York to the Isles of Scilly. But I, I actually did about 3,485. Because mm. the guys had my tracker. That's how I said how far they did when I got back. And um, the night before I landed... You know, I, I picked up the lighthouses on the Isle of Scilly, you know, and um, I'd actually found them. But I, I quite often say in uh, what I call military humour, <clears throat> if I'd have actually missed the Isles of Scilly, what I'd have actually said was, well, I was aiming for England anyway, you know, and um, when I bumped into England, I'd have just turned left and right a little bit because it's a massive body of land, isn't it? You, you know, yeah. you're not, you're not going to miss it. And if I missed England, I'd bump into France, you know, and I'd say, oh, I was really aiming for France, like, you know, but the honest answer was I was aiming for the Isles of Scilly. Were you surprised that you actually hit him when you saw the lighthouse? I would be like, holy shit. Like, I, uh, again, not a water person, but I relate it to like, you know, when you do a navigation course, orienteering in the woods or something, you get to where you think your point is and then you kind of like mill around for a bit and you say, oh shit, it's over there. Versus there's sometimes where you just step right upon it and you're like, look how good I am. No, it, it, I was I was quietly confident, if I'm honest, uh, because I, I tuned right into celestial navigation. You know, I was out there for 85 days. And in that time, you know, a lot went on, but I was reasonably confident that the navigation was going well. And the night, it was about two o'clock in the morning, and I thought, oh, I should be able to pick the lighthouses up now where I think I am. And you can see these lighthouses 20 miles away. You know, they, they're designed to be seen at night, you know, 20 yeah. miles away. And I picked up what they call Bishop's Rock, which is the southerly point on the Isles of Scilly. It flashes two white flashes every 15 seconds. And I had my binoculars out and I was 
scanning for it and, and it just came over the horizon. So I took a bearing to it and then I picked up the Northern Lighthouse, which flashes once every um, 15 seconds. I took a bearing to that and did a resection on my chart. And that was the first time in 85 days that I actually knew where I was because I had a physical land mass to, um, to take a resection on. And um, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Matt, I, I was euphoric. You know, I, almost, I had a tear in my eye that, you know, one of the main challenges of the adventure was the navigation. You know, will I actually find the Isles of Scilly? And I, yeah. and I found them. And, and I, I literally sat on the boat for about five minutes in sort of like shock that I actually found the Isles of Scilly. And I had a, I had a real tear in my eye because um, that was one of the main aims of the challenge. You know, the adventure was to um, was the navigation piece. Yeah, before you left, you said that one of your, I don't know if I call it a goal, but you said when you finish, you would wonder if you were going to be, you know, excited that it was coming to an end or sad that it was coming to an end. Yeah, and it was the same time I had the conversation because because I I knew where I was, Matt, on the, on the chart. I realized I probably had about 18 hours to myself left. You know, it was 2 o'clock in the morning and it it was going to take me a good 12 hours plus, you know, probably a bit, you know, nearer 18 hours to get in. And um, I quite often say to people, they said, oh, why don't you give us the time you're going to be in? And I said, well, it's not like a train timetable, you know. You know, there's, there's a lot going on here. And so I, I said, I'll, I'll be, I reckon I'll be about 6 o'clock at night. And, and I did actually get there at 6 o'clock at night. But um, I, I was sitting there and I was rowing for the next hour, just, just in my mind, just chilling out to a bit of music. And I, I was sort of like reflecting across the whole piece that i just done, 85 days at sea. And I thoroughly enjoyed every single day, you know, and it, there was a lot of hardship, you know, there was lots of storms, some really big storms, got capsized, got the rudder ripped off, you know, major power losses, you know, I broke my ribs. There, there was there was a lot that went on there, you know, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed every day and all the challenges. And so I, I'd achieved my aim that I'd enjoyed every single day of the, of the, uh, the row, but I, I realised it was time for it to end. You know, it, mm. it was, I was, I was finishing it on a high, you know, I, I, I'd found the, I was a silly, you know, after all that hardship, the food, the routines, the isolation, everything. And, um, absolutely loved every minute of it. But, um, I just said to myself, yeah, but it's time to end it now. You know, it's time to sort of like go and see who's going to be there at the finish and, um, and, and, and go home. I want to get into more of the mindfulness stuff, but you just kind of threw a few things at us. So we know that there was crazy weather, like in the middle of the ocean, you got to be dealing with insane kind of storms. You said you were taking a site uh, to navigate off the top of a wave cruising down. Like how big were the waves? How heavy was the rain? How just like, you know, this is the stuff that the Greeks wrote about, you know, the gods throwing at you. What was some of the craziest shit you saw out there? So when I was uh, navigating, the sort of like average wave height was probably about six foot. You know, it, it was a couple of meters, and because the weather was good, and but that was kind of the average sea state. But um, uh, I got caught up in a, a tropical storm called Claudette, and uh, that wasn't. It was probably about three weeks after leaving New York, and I learned early on if uh, a storm gets a name, it's going to be a bit of a a bit of a blow. 
and um, yeah. it it came it intensified really really quickly and the waves are huge and when these storms come people say oh how big were the waves I said well they weren't waves they were walls of water you know they were like just walls of water coming at you and occasionally on the top of the wall of water would be a breaking wave which would cause a damage and that was when I sustained my first capsize uh, I was rowing I was just about to put out the uh, parachute anchor, which is a defensive tactic against the storms. It, it holds the nose of the boat into the, the waves and the wind. And we just got hit by a big wave and it turned us upside down. I mean, I went for a swim. Luckily, once the wave had finished its power, you imagine, imagine on a beach where a wave crashes, you know, and you might be swimming and it hits you as you're on the beach and it knocks you over. And then... It takes a while for it to uh, dissipate. And then once it's finished its power, you can just stand up. Cause, and that was the same thing that happened to me on, on the first one. I clawed out about three weeks out. I had to wait for the wave to happen. And it's quite strange because I'm now underneath the boat, looking up at the boat because it had capsized on top of me. And as if by magic, um, probably it probably felt longer, but it was maybe, maybe about you know, 15, 20 seconds. The boat just righted itself, you know, because it's designed to be self-righting. And, and in that in that movement, the safety netting scooped me up back into the boat. And um, there I was, completely wet now, thinking to myself, wow, we just capsized. And my only thought was, was how warm the water was, because we was in the Gulf Stream. And it was 29 degrees. I'm not sure what that is in, in your sort of like temperatures, but that for us is like bath water. You know, it's, it's seriously warm. Yeah. And um, so that was the first storm. But the one that done the real damage was 700 miles off of the UK coast on the on the UK side of the Atlantic. And it was a, a storm force 10 plus, which is 55 miles an hour, sort of like 60 mile an hour winds, steady winds, gusting more. And at night, the eye of the storm basically passed over me. And, and what that means is the the wind shift changes really quickly from one direction to another and it creates a confused sea. So not only was there walls of water coming from one direction, they started to come from other directions as well. And about midnight, I was on the parachute anchor. I was in the front cabin and I was asleep, sort of trying to get some sleep in the storm. And I woke up on the roof of the boat. Uh, it got capsized somehow. I, I don't know how, but it got capsized. And it just rolled back, so, so it wasn't a particularly violent capsize. And then while I was sort of like just thinking, oh, have I lost any kit, that type of thing, the the, the wave center got picked up and it, I could just feel it getting vertical, right? the nose getting higher on the wave, on the face of the wave. And it got to so steep that um, the wave must have broke a little bit and threw Sentinel backwards onto her roof and it's what they call in um, sort of ocean rowing and sailing terms with pitch pole. So basically the boat went from end to end rather than mm. just rolling on its side. And that motion itself um, is quite violent. You imagine a car flipping onto its roof, how violent that would be. Well, it was the same with the boat because Sentinel was quite a big boat. And that motion of landing on its roof was what broke my ribs, nearly knocked me out. But uh, then the wave or the wall of water crashed on top of us. And we're talking sort of like tens and tens and tens of tons of water just pinning the boat underneath. You know, we, we went we went deep six almost. 
and that action just filled the, filled the cabin up that I was in. You know, it, it came through every sort of like crack, seal. And once the wave had finished its power, Sentinel righted, but um, the damage was done. We lost all power. I, I'd broken my ribs a little bit. All my communications equipment was damaged. And we was down to emergency communications. At any time, how close did you think you were going to be to not making the row? And how far were you willing to go or how much risk extra risk were you willing to take on in order to make it? Or is there a moment where you thought like, fuck, this could be it? No, I, I mean, it's, we, I, I was super confident in the boat, you know, the abilities of the boat. And um, I was confident in my abilities as well, you know, and it, it sounds a bit arrogant, but when, you, when you're out there on your own, you've got to have sort of like, um, almost like blind faith in what you're doing. Because if you don't, you'll hmm. you'll start questioning yourself and, and making the wrong decisions and after that storm um the you the falmouth coast guard which is you know it's the same as your u.s coast guard they they rang me on my emergency my emergency communications and i i talked them through it, it was in a howling storm we were still being knocked over and I remember the uh, the guy ringing me up. He's, he was Chris. He said, "Ian, it's uh, Falmouth Coast Guard here, the uh, the emergency centre. Your support team's just got in touch with us to say that you're in difficulty. You don't need a, you know, we're we're offering you a rescue. You know, do do you need us to um, facilitate a rescue?" And 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 at that moment, I just said to him, "I said no. I said the boat's wounded. We were listing, you know, because we'd taken on water. I'd lost power." So I was on emergency batteries. I was hurting a bit because I'd broken my ribs. You know, I had a bit of a head injury. And I just said to him, I said, look, we've got six hours left of the storm. So the storm hadn't gone away. We were still in it. And um, once daylight came, we'll make a full assessment of the damage. And then we'll see what we need to do to keep us going. And daylight came in the morning. And that's when I realized how just how big the storm was because I could see the waves then. I was, I was like, these are like big walls of water. But once the storm had gone over and calmed down, it, it takes about 24 hours for these storms to sort of like just calm themselves down. I, I repaired Sentinel to get some power back, uh, got the autopilot working, which helps me steer. That also gave a chance for my, my, hips, my ribs to sort of like calm themselves down a bit and I could work out what I could get away with. And mm. I just thought, nope, we're not done yet. We'll um, we'll just start rowing and see how it goes, and then um, four weeks later we arrived. I like the part you said about blind faith. One of my favorite movies, Interstellar, is about space. So you can call me a nerd or whatever. And there's a point <laughs> in that movie where uh, you know one guy is kind of like freaking out because they're outside the walls of their craft is you know nothing but you know millions of miles of, of space. And uh, the other guy tells him a story about how, you know, solo uh, yachtsmen or, you know, solo seagoers, uh, they don't even care to know how to swim because if they don't make it on their boat, they don't make it anyway. And then I also <laughs> thought about something that I'm a little more familiar with is I do a lot of jumping and, you know, something that we would tell students is like, uh, you know, if something's going wrong, you have the, the rest of your life to fix it. Because if you don't, there's a there's another sure outcome. 
Well, it's, it's true. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the mindfulness, you know, which, which we, we, we started to speak about earlier. And almost straight away when I was on the boat, I, I, would, I would wake up and spend five, ten minutes just going through a mindfulness routine of breathing, just reconnecting with parts of the body, just clearing the mind, ready for whatever the day brings. And then I'd go through exactly the same routine when I got in a rowing, rowing position. I would check the position was good. My feet were seated. My, my bum was sitting on the seat properly. I had good feeling on the hands. And the first couple of orpals, I would just go through the routine of making sure the hamstrings were equal, the feet placings were equal, the, the shoulders were in a good position, and, and just set the day up to, to, to work in, in, in that kind of sense. And it, it, it cleared the mind from anything that were bad that had happened the day before or any sort of like negative thoughts you had through dreams the night before. And it, it was a really good way of, um, of, of starting the day. And mm. it, it kind of like started the routine of the day. Did you notice anything change about your body other than, you know, the broken ribs and the head injury? But over time, what did you notice physically as well as mentally about, you know, did your body comp change? Did you, did you have aches and pains every morning or did you kind of adapt to it? Yeah, so when, when I left New York, I, I hadn't done much ocean rowing because in the UK it was in lockdown, in uh, the COVID lockdown, so I couldn't get on the water. And I only did um, four days rowing in the UK before I left. And when I got to New York, I, I'd probably done maybe sort of like a day's worth of rowing up and down the Hudson just to test the systems. So the body had to adapt from basically sort of like being on land in, in New York and New Jersey to being an ocean rower. And um, it's a little bit like doing selection, you know, when you, you, you did selection sort of thing to, to get in the special forces. You turn up on day one and you're conditioned for what you're about to do. But it's actually over the first couple of weeks that your body adapts to the hardness of what it needs to do. Uh, like your feet toughen up, your hands toughen up, your back gets used to carrying heavy weights. And mine went for the same. So the first two weeks, I had blisters upon blisters on my hands because obviously I'm rowing. And I'd look at them thinking, God, these are really sore. But it's the the administration, you know, the good administration, cleaning them at night, putting proper cream on them to allow them to heal. And after two weeks, by the time I got to the hours of sleep, my hands were like leather. I never did any. After two weeks, they were just perfect all the way across. I, I, I set off from New York and I was 95 kilograms, which I'm not quite sure what that is in, in your weights over there, but probably about 215 pounds or something like that, I'd have thought. Yeah, sounds and right. when, I, when I got to the UK, I had lost 16 pounds, maybe, maybe 20 pounds because it was eight kilos. But I, I'd put on five, I'll give you in yours, 12 pounds of muscle mass in a year for the row. With only only one percent extra body fat, so I'd actually put muscle, uh, what I call working muscle, on, and so I, I lost the working muscle. Um, my chest muscles shrunk, my back muscles increased, my shoulder muscles increased, biceps shrunk a little bit, triceps increased, my lower back muscles, my glutes and hamstrings doubled in size. I mean, my hamstrings literally doubled because. All the power for rowing comes from the back muscles, the, the hamstrings and the glutes. Hmm. 
my calf muscles disappeared. So <laughs> I, I ended up with sparrow, sparrow calf muscles, like, you know, because you use them a little bit in rowing, but I, I didn't do any walking, Matt. So you imagine you walk around, it just your calf muscles maintain. Yeah. I did no walking because so for 85 days, I was, I was literally sat down, either rowing or when I, so I was either sat down rowing, sat down making dinner or have a cup of tea or coffee, or I was laying down. There was there was never any sort of like calf muscle working going on. And I, I, I'd literally row and halfway across, I was, I'd look at my calf muscles and think, I wonder how small they're actually going to get by the time I get to the other side. But in body composition, so that that was the main change. And, um, you know, I lost sort of like 20 pounds in weight. But I didn't really lose um, body fat, if I'm honest, probably maybe about 2 or 3%. In, in sort of like body fat composition. And I think that was probably because I wasn't particularly had that much body fat anyway because um, I'd done a lot of work with the, one of the local universities over in the sports science department. And we kind of worked out what fuels my body would use in its internally to, to maintain the effort levels. And, it, and if you imagine whatever routine I did during the day, I would have to sustain it for the next day, the next day, the next day, and the next day, and so forth. And we, we worked it out. If, if I was going to row between 10 and 14 hours a day, I would have to almost just a fast walking kind of pace. But more importantly, what that done, it, it used your fat stores in your body as fuel rather than mm -hmm. the carbohydrate stores, which you may use if you go jogging sort of thing, or if you went low-intensity jogging, you might use your fat stores. And that way, it's a more e efficient fuel for your body to burn. But more importantly, you could refuel it easier. Because if you if you use your carbohydrate stores, the average person like myself that would weigh sort of like 200 pounds, 210 pounds, has about an hour and 10 minutes carbohydrate stores in them. And so you, you have to fuel more often. But I, I could easily go for three, four hours and have the fat stores if I kept it at a certain intensity. Mm -hmm. And... So I would row for an hour, refuel, you know, a cup of tea, a, a, an energy drink with maybe an energy bar, row for an hour, repeat. <clears throat> and the important thing about that being that low intensity is it enables your body to recover at night to do the same thing the next day. Whereas if I'd have gone into sort of like the top end aerobics, that you might run a, a marathon out or something like that. And I don't know if you've run a marathon, Matt, but... Most people have trouble walking the next day because they've, they've pushed themselves quite hard. Mm -hmm. And because they've pushed themselves really hard, they can't recover quick enough to, uh, to run another marathon the next day. So I needed to be able to run, in fact, several marathons in a day, but run several marathons the next day as well, but in rowing terms. But keeping the energy levels and the effort levels uh, top end of zone one, bottom end of zone two, that enabled me to do it. Yeah, I don't really have the discipline to do that. And uh, I have run a couple marathons and, uh, you know, the next day it's not pretty. And it's because I had to go <laughs> definitely out of zone one, probably out of zone two to get it done. Um, yeah. But I've always wondered, like, you know, you see these people that do, you know, 50 marathons in 50 days or a marathon in every state. And you're like, how how do you even get to that uh you know, that's, that's not even like going from zero to one. That's like going, you know, several orders of magnitude, but the way you explained it makes a little more sense now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and that's what I did. I mean, a couple of days, I just got carried away. And you just kind of get in that tempo, which sometimes you do when you go running. You know, you just run a little bit faster than you normally do, and it makes you feel good. So there was a couple of days where I was on the oars, and the, the, we, I was surfing down the waves with Sentinel. And it, it just becomes exhilarating. So you row a little bit harder to get a bit more speed down the wave. And then before you know it, you've done eight hours in sort of like tempo. And you know you've, you, you know you've worked hard because at the end of the day, you're knackered. Whereas yeah. on a normal day, you'd refuel and, and it felt quite good. What were some of the hardest maintenance issues to deal with uh, with the boat? So, you know, you talked about getting flow, which when I think about the boat, you know, capsizing, I think it's long and thin and you would roll over, but to go end over end is just, uh, can't even imagine what that looks like or feel like, but you said you broke a rudder. I'm sure other stuff broke. We talked about having spare oars before you left. How interesting did that get? Yeah. So in terms of oars, I didn't break any of them. And I was really surprised, Matt, you know, I I was expecting to go through a couple of pairs, Hmm. but uh, they were, they were carbon fiber with wooden handles. And they were incredibly tough. I mean, I, I bent them on all sorts, and they didn't break. It, 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 I was quite surprised. But the uh, the storm ripped the rudder off. It snapped it and bent a lot of metal parts. But lucky, I, t- I took some spares, spare metal parts. I didn't have a spare rudder blade, the bit that goes into the water that kind of steers the boat. I had to sort of like refashion another part of the boat to to become the rudder. But it, it kind of worked, so um, I, I was happy with that. But the uh, the one thing that I didn't realise would cause an issue is the because the weather was never that sunny once I got away from America. So when I left America, it was always sunny. So off the coast of Long Island and up up towards sort of like Cape Cod and maybe about five hundred miles offshore, there was lots of sunshine, quite hot hmm. days. But as I got towards the UK, and anyone that's ever been to the UK, the weather's never as good as New York, trust me. Mm. And I, I, I would spend weeks in what I call dapple cloud, cloudy weather. So the solar panels were, they would be efficient in sunlight, bright sunlight, so, uh, but when it was cloudy, they didn't always recharge the batteries very well. And so, so I'd, I'd have to start turning systems off so I'd rely on the critical systems. And the only one, only system that I really wanted was the autopilot because that enabled me to help steer. I, I would row and it would just keep me on a compass bearing that I asked it to keep me on. And then the one behind that was the uh, the water maker that, that made my water. And I had a thing called a Schenker 30. It's just a maker water maker. But the 30 meant that in an hour it would make 30 litres of water. <clears throat> But it would use a lot of power, and um, it would normally take the solar panels at least twenty-four hours to recharge the batteries. If if I made thirty liters, so it was always like when the sun was out, I would stop rowing and make water, you know, irrespective of whether I needed it or not. You know, I'd always top up the uh, the jerry cans that I had, the water the water containers, to make sure they were always full. So when it was sunny, I stopped rowing and just made water because I knew it would be able to charge the batteries. And then when it was cloudy, and sometimes it went for two weeks, I didn't make water for two weeks because there was there was no sunshine to, uh, to, to recharge the batteries. You have to do all this, like, planning, math, you know, and route too, right? Like, you're 
I mean, you brought, you know, 90 days worth of food plus some emergencies. You made it in 85 days. You have 30 liters to top up on water, but, you know, make sure the caps are tight. So when you get flipped over, you know, you don't lose it all. And if you're going like two weeks without enough power to make water, like, uh, you know, you're constantly having to do all these math equations just to keep yourself going. Right. Yeah. And it was part of the fun of it really. So, um, I worked with a sports psychologist in um, Leeds Beckett University in the in the Carnegie campus. They got a brand new um, building there, fantastic location. And the sports psychologists, you know, we, we the the issue that I thought I might have, Matt, was being on my own because I've never been on my own for that amount of time. You know, hmm. you might have been away for like a week or something like that, and then you, you come back into civilization. But I would truly be on my own because I'd be in the middle of the Atlantic. And the Mariana, uh, the professor there, Professor Mariana, she, she basically said, what, what you need to create was purpose during the day. You know, and, and it might sound really strange or, or really simple, but um, most of us have purpose during the day. You know, we get up in the morning, we have breakfast, we go to work, work gives us purpose, and then we go and see our family, our girlfriends, you know, we do our sports and, and your whole day is structured around you and, and sort of like your lifestyle that you've created and it gives you purpose to do it. So so Mariana, Professor Mariana, she says, basically, Ian, you've got to create a routine. The A is sustainable, but more importantly, it gives you purpose. And that will give you fulfillment throughout the day and and, and keep you uh, on, the, on the straight and narrow mentally, you know, because you're on your own. And, and that routine... You can judge yourself on the routine because no one else is going to judge you on it. And so I would, I would get up one to two hours before first light. I would I would make coffee, have a cup of coffee, row on yours as the sun came up, have breakfast, row for another hour before eight o'clock, and that created the route. That that was the start of the day. And I'd row between ten and fourteen hours a day, and in the evenings or even during the day, I would do bits of maintenance. And at night time, was all about recovery. So when it got dark, I would go down below, put her in night routine and go to sleep. And and probably when the summer solstice was, I'd get in between three and four hours. And then as I got towards the UK, I'd, I'd sometimes get up to like five or six hours. But the, the important thing about the, the routine, Matt, was you could recognise when you were down. You know, your mood was low because... You, you were struggling to maintain the routine. You, you maybe not have trouble getting out of bed. You, you had lackluster on the oars. So after about 30 minutes, you were thinking about doing something else. And then you could, that was the markers to say that actually being on your own. So if there was two people there, someone might say to you, oh, Ian, you, you're looking a bit down today. Or Matt, you know, you're okay. You, know, you haven't spoken to me all day, but you, know, you, you seem a bit down. But because I didn't have that, camaraderie on the boat i had to create it through routine and so if i was ever low and i recognize it now by those kind of markers really i was never physically low it was, it was like a mental thing you know i think oh maybe i'm missing the kids or i, I feel like i should be ringing someone up to have a chat with them I, I i would have sort of like markers to bring my mood up you know back to where it should be mm-hmm. and the first one was um music I'd play my favorite music and bizarrely that, that turned into country music, you know, 
and um, there was some other stuff in there, but eighty percent of the music I played was country. And I'll, I'll tell you how that happened in a minute. It, it wasn't by design. It just kind of it just kind of randomly happened. And then then I would um, you know go to the treat bucket, which was like chocolate. You know, so I treat myself, and then people sent me mo- or gave me before I left like motivational letters that open if you're having a bad day and there'll be like a little motivational quote or something like that and then the last resort really was i drink someone up on my satellite communications which yeah. occasionally i'd run i'd ring someone up but uh yeah and that was the the kind of routine so going to the country how did uh, that happen not a big country scene in uh western uk no, I think there is like, but when I when I was in New York, I, I, I'd ask for recommendations. So I, I had a thing called Apple Music on my iPhone, which was going to play all my music. And I didn't really look into it. That I didn't realize that once you lost an internet connection, you got 30 days before it turns off. Because I think it must be every 30 days you pay your bill. It's like a licensing <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. So it, it basically thought that, you know, I... The, the app decided it wasn't going to play my music anymore. So I emailed someone and they said, oh, <clears throat> just get on your BGAM, which is like an internet connection I had. It was a satellite internet connection, which I used to send little videos back on. Uh, log on to Apple, and you'd only have to log on to it for a couple of minutes. It would recognize that you've logged back on, and it would reinstate all your music. But bizarrely, the only music it reinstated was country music the the country music playlist and it didn't even it didn't put the other music back on so i'd go for another 30 days with just country music and um, i actually quite got quite tuned into it and then 30 days later i had to re-sign in and it got rid of all my other music and purely just then had country music and I just couldn't favor it out. So I ended up just having country music all the way to the end. Yeah, it's a hell of a scene seeing you just, uh, you know, crossing the ocean, singing some country. Do you sing too? Or uh, do you ever just talk to yourself? Anything no, I, like that? Uh, occasionally, occasionally, I would hum to the music, you know, because I'm not a very good singer. But I, I never spoke to myself at all. And I, I, I thought maybe I would, you know, just have a little conversation with yourself, but <clears throat> I, I, I never did, you know. And uh, someone gave me a volleyball. I can't remember who it was, Matt, but someone gave me a volleyball called Wilson's. <laughs> and, and I quite often thought, am I going to end up talking to that volleyball? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but but I never did. I never did. Okay. So that's good. We just wanted to test your sanity. That was That would be one of your markers if you start talking about volleyball and it's yeah. serious intervention. Yeah, absolutely. You also, uh, we were watching your Instagram. You had Captain Paddles with you. But uh, before we get into who he was, uh, you, the whole time you've been saying we on, about your adventure, do you typically say we, including the boat? Like, Do you form a bond with the boat itself? Yeah, it's interesting. Almost straight away, I, I started to refer to it as a we, as a, like a partnership. Because we essentially looked after each other. You know, the boat was particularly good at what it did. As long as you kind of pointed it in the right direction, it, it handled mm. the storms very well. 
And it was only the, the really grisly storms that we, we got into a bit of a pickle. So I always refer to Sentinel, you know, I say, oh, we got up to this, you know, and because you kind of formed a bond with your boat. Yeah. So, so that's where it came from. Who gave, uh, who gave you Captain Paddles? Was that like a family thing? No, so uh, my best friend Alex, who I did selection with, he was medically discharged pretty much the same time as me. He, he basically got injured in, um, you know, d- during sort of like combat type stuff. So he, his daughter, who was 11, said to me, I'm really concerned, Ian, that you're going to get lonely. Hmm. I think it's a really good idea if you take my teddy. And um, it was the SES teddy called, it was actually called Sterling. It's called the Sterling teddy. And you can only get it if you're a veteran or a serving member. And um, she said, but we're not going to call it um, Sterling. We're going to call it Captain Paddles. And she said, she gave it the rank of captain to be equal to me because I was obviously the captain of Sentinel. Yeah. And she didn't want me to overrule it, you know, in that kind of <laughs> kind of way. And, um, but we, we, I kind of had this love-hate relationship with uh, Captain Paddles because everyone would ask me about Captain Paddles. How's Captain mm. Paddles? You know, you, you know, and I'm like, he's in the brig. Of <laughs> so I, he spent the whole time hidden in what I call the brig. You know, you know, yeah. he's in the brig. He's been bad. You talk about people back at home following you, you know, as we did, but also. Uh, you know, sending messages or even giving you messages before uh, you took off. And then you see posts on social media about people getting together and do a row, something like that. How much did that uh, mean to you kind of, even though you're alone out there knowing, um, you know, that these these people are tracking you or wondering what you're going to say to them when you get back or even just being an inspiration to some people? Yeah, I found creating the videos and the blogs, sending them back really therapeutic you know it it was quite fun because the feedback i got from the videos and the podcasts that i'd done was that it kind of brought the row alive you know everyone else felt as if they're taking part in it Mm -hmm. you know because i talk about the boat the sea the weather conditions the environment you know navigation and they they all felt they was part of it and the response i got from the videos was was quite touching It, it was very motivational for me, seeing the, the, the sort of like encouraging comments from different people, a lot of um, people I joined the army with, and, and I have to go back a long way when I joined the army, you know, probably a lot further back than you, Matt. But, um, yeah. you know, you, you meant to say not really, if I'm honest. But you, 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 no. You, you, no. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, yeah. Well, I joined this, uh, I joined the planet when you joined the army. Something like that, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but um, so some of the people I joined the army with that I'd probably lost touch with because I, I, when I went to the special forces, I re-engaged with all of those kind of people because they basically picked up on the row. My, my, my very first unit I, I joined the army with, they picked up on it as well. They were really supportive and it, it kind of re- re-engaged with a lot of people that I'd lost touch with, which was very, very touching. You said that you talked to your mindfulness coach, but, you know, I don't know if she has actually spent three months on her own. I don't know. Maybe she has. What do you know now that you didn't know before? And you had a good quote in our first podcast. You said, uh, you know, some people go run an Ironman, but I think of an adventure as something where when you start, you don't know the outcome until it actually happens. <laughs> so talking about the isolation, but also just, you know, the journey, 
What do you know now that you didn't know before? Or what did you learn about yourself? First of all, in myself, really, was the where the challenge was, you know, the adventure. And it, it was definitely adventure. I didn't know the outcome until it actually happened. And, and that was the two o'clock in the morning when I picked up on the two lighthouses. You know, I, I realized I'd actually made it. You know, and I was like, yeah. wow, you know, did I ever thought I was going to get there? Probably not, you know, but, uh, you know, the, nothing was going to stop me stopping myself trying to get there. But what did I learn about myself? I, I realized I was quite resilient, you know, um, and the mindfulness piece uh, that I worked with Mariana about creating routines, keeping yourself calm, you know, going through that sort of like mind and body thing in the morning, you know, sort of like waking yourself up, taking your thoughts to your, you know, all to your extremities, your breathing and your mind. It, it, it kind of enabled me to no matter what was thrown at me, just take a moment and just think, I don't quite know the answer now, but maybe in an hour I'll work it out how I'm going to fix it. And that played out quite a lot in the big storms. <clears throat> and so I'd never been in big storms in a rowing boat. And uh, as I say, the walls of water were huge and waves would come from different angles. And I'd spend sort of like hours working out the best tactics you know, we was getting proper smashed up, you know, thrown around a boat. I'd have to put what I call big red on my helmet when I was in the boat because it was just being thrown around inside and you need to protect your head a little bit. But the uh, the mindfulness piece just, just gave me clarity of thoughts when things were really busy, you know, around you, when you needed to process information quietly and calmly without sort of like raising your concern levels or your anxiety levels. And... Um, that's probably the biggest takeaway that I'll take from the, the whole adventure was the mindfulness and being able to keep your mind in a receptive mode rather than a sort of like panicky mode. And I almost, I, I almost sort of like give the analogy that if you shout so much at someone in an argument, you lose the ability to have rational thoughts, you know, because you you're just so forceful with the way you're you're throwing your sort of like your voice out there. But if you can keep yourself calm and rational and sort of like in that mindfulness state, you can take in the information and process it so much easier. And um even when I've been capsized, broken ribs, you know, lost all the power, I was sort of seven hundred miles from the coast in a in a really big storm. I, I was never concerned. I just thought, no, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this just yet. But I'll, I'll get Sentinel into in a position where I can point her in the right direction, get going, and then I'll just work it out as I go. You know, and, and that's what um, which which probably was the biggest takeaway from the whole adventure for myself personally was the mindfulness piece. Well, how does this rank in sort of the list of the hardest things that you've chosen to done or had to do? It's probably the hardest, you know, although it didn't feel that hard when I was doing it, you know, yeah. um, sort of like three days once I finished, I realized the body was a bit fatigued. The The work I did with the university, sort of like the physiological, you know, the, the fitness side of it, the nutrition and the, and the psychological side, how we mapped it out beforehand and thought it would work was it worked out fantastically. The the routines we came up with, you know, really enabled the to keep efficient. But if, if I hadn't have done that, I reckon it would have been a lot harder. Mm -hmm. you know, for sure, it's the 
longest endurance thing I've done and, and, and tested me to, you know, on my own because most other things I've done were in uh, small teams as such. So, so for sure that was probably the hardest, but, um, I, I'll still go back to, um, basic training when I was 18 years old and I, I got that transition in uh, Woolwich in London as a basic soldier, physically the hardest thing I've ever done was that transitioning from a civilian into uh, into a military soldier. Uh, in, and that was like a long time ago, Matt. So it, it still yeah. ranks up there. We uh, have like a special show question that we ask everybody. I think last time someone rang the doorbell on us and it slipped my mind, but it's a good thing that we decided to create a sequel uh, so oh, okay. I could actually get back and ask you to it. And maybe it's a, you know, a little uh, better after you've completed the journey. But everybody who comes on since we are about, you know, life after service, we always ask, you know, who are you today if you never served? And I know that you've had several events after separating uh, from service, but, you know, obviously still a huge part of your life. So who are you today uh, if you never, you know, made that choice? So who would I be today if I hadn't joined the army? Yeah. Well, that's a big one, is. Oh, you, you've got me there. So, so when I when I joined the army, I, I I had two two routes in front of me. One of them was the military, which was, and the other one was uh, to become a photographer, a cameraman. You know, like you'd see, you know, doing TV programs. But obviously, you've got to go back in time now with the type of cameras they used. Right. And I, I was about to go down that route. So I probably would have gone down that route if I hadn't gone down a route and become the man I am today. I may have been that man. Still probably getting into a bit of adventure. I mean, not doing like, you know, late night TV, maybe out doing documentaries and traveling the world still. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, you know, the, the sense of adventure and travel was is, is what kind of drives me around the, around the world to see new places, do new challenges. And, and I'm sure as, as a camera person, that that would have done exactly the same, you know, doing documentaries in, in, in different places. Our producer, who is, again, uh, not here on this, he's got a newborn, so he let me run the uh, little virtual recording studio here. He's a filmmaker, so we talk about, you know, movies, and, and some of our guests who come on, we say, like, oh, it should be a documentary about him, too. Are you putting all your stuff into a documentary have you thought about what uh you know what you can produce after this and do you kind of have all of the content video and stuff to back it up yeah so early on uh, a friend of mine uh, john templeton who uh, is a, ca- a professional cameraman he is his, his, his livelihood you know um i first worked with him in libya when i got out and um he approached me maybe a year before i started the road Mm-hmm. And and he didn't know I was doing a row. He just rang me up and said, he, "You know, I want to make a documentary. Do you know anyone do anything a bit random?" And I, I told him about my row, and he said, "Oh, that's pretty random. Should we make a documentary about it?" Yeah. And he done all the footage on the UK side in the training, the build up, uh, me depart in the UK. Unfortunately, because of COVID and the the regulations are getting into the United States at the time, he couldn't fly to New York. So um, a, a team in New York uh, did the filming over there. Uh, I did all the filming sort of like once I left Liberty Landings on the boat, 
So I've got all that footage. And John Templeton basically met me 10 miles offshore as I approached the Isles of Scilly. So mm-hmm. he's got the arrival footage and a, and a little bit after. And he's currently getting all the footage into a sizzler reel, basically, you know, to do a documentary. Oh, nice. Well, uh, hopefully. Yeah, we'll be first to uh, download that okay. or see wherever it comes out. So, what's next? My first thought was could you ever do this on the Pacific Ocean? If you can hit a if you can hit a little bunch of islands from three thousand miles, I'm sure you could hit a bunch of islands, you know, here and there bouncing around the Pacific. Has anyone ever done it over there or is this uh is that too outlandish to suggest? No, I think there's there's a rowing race that goes from San Francisco to Hawaii, which was going on the same time I was doing the uh, the row. But the, the, the real Pacific challenge for rowers, and it's never been completed as a solo yet because they've, they've got to, is to leave Japan and arrive in the United States having crossed the Pacific proper, you know, without stopping at one of the islands. Hmm. And that is still elusive for a solo rower to go from landmass to landmass unsupported. So a Frenchman's done it from Japan and got to 50 miles from the United States and got towed in. So he's actually crossed the ocean, but he, he didn't quite make the final piece. So he's, he's actually rowed the whole of the ocean, but didn't quite manage to get to shore just because of the, uh, the currents off the, uh, the Pacific coast, as you're probably aware, Matt, are, are quite rippers. They, they don't let you get inland that easy. They, they take you north and south. And effectively, he almost got there, but um, he got started to take north. And so he, he took the toe in because he, he'd effectively run out of food. But he'd actually crossed it, but not quite finished it. So that's that's there to be done. That would still be a first if someone did that. Is that you or someone else? Uh, as we speak now, it's probably someone else, but you never know. <laughs> well, you know, don't put anything past you. Yeah. What about professionally? Because we do talk a lot about that on this show too, and I know that uh, you know. Last time you said that, hey, you and your, uh, you and the other guys that you own and run your company with decided, you know, hey, let's take a break. Everyone go on an adventure. So, what's it like getting back to, uh, you know, maybe normal life? Or I know you, you know, something like this has a huge buildup, but like, what are you transitioning back into now? Yeah, so that, that's, that's interesting. So I've, I've pretty much got a blank piece of paper in front of me because the company's still COVID lockdown. We're not really moving it forwards. So I'm, I'm currently thinking of doing a PhD in sports psychology and um, more importantly, the mindset of endurance endurance sport. You know, and when we talk about endurance sport, you know, you could look at it as um, what I've just done, you know, um, ultra distance running. It's, it's that mindset really how does someone push themselves to do something like that when some people just just give up you know what's the they're physically the same you know they eat the same food they, you know do the same training but someone's just got that little bit of sharpness in the mind to to kind of take them all the way to the finish so i'm just sort of like working with a, a supervising professor of, of one of the universities and, and discussing about doing a phd in that basically in the sports psychology element of it 
yeah. but more on, on the practical side of it. You know, it's, it's going to be an academic piece of work for sure, but um, it will it will go into sort of like basically those that sort of like succeed in ultra distance, you know, and that mindset piece, you know, whether it's mainly solos really what we're looking at, or I'm looking at, I should say. Uh, those that are unsuccessful, you know, the, the sort of like, you know, you know, the mindset kind of piece, but more importantly, those that overcome obstacles, you know, if something happens, you know, what was their mindset at that piece to, to continue on to the end? Whereas some people might hit the speed bump and just say, no, that's me, you know. And if if you can kind of answer that question, you know, it, you could sort of like use it in a lot of contexts or it, it could be helpful for people taking on challenges like that or even, even businesses really. Because if you imagine a business, a lot of projects that a business would do are like ultra distance events, aren't they? Because they don't happen over a day. You know, some, you know, spade in the ground to production at the other end might take 10 years you know they're, they're sort of like big projects and uh, the mindfulness of the project you know the whole piece of the project the longevity of it is almost the same really as the mindfulness of ultra endurance athletes you know if, if you could sort of like get the key elements and work between the two you know it, it would be of useful value i don't imagine you have much uh trouble getting admitted into a program given your uh, recent experience if you're doing a PhD in sports psychology. Yeah. Did you, you know, ever we, think uh, you ever think you'd be a PhD guy? Because we talked about, you know, both of us when we first joined the, uh, the military, didn't really care about school much. And then, you know, as you get older a little bit, you kind of come around to it and say, hey, this helps too. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, I wasn't academically dim or anything like that. You know, I was probably average and I wasn't particularly bright because I wasn't really interested. You know, I was interested in other stuff and I, I came back to it and I, and I realized that, that, you know, it's, it's helpful, you know, to come back to it and, and focus it in a direction that you want to use it. Whereas yeah. when I, when I was at, you know, coming through school, I just kind of, I wouldn't say I lost interest. Well, I probably did lose interest actually, you know, I joined the army because I found it more fun, but what it actually created in me, was because I left academia or school reasonably, I, I always had this sort of like burning ambition. I was I was what they call, um, when it comes to professional development or CPD, you know, constant professional development. I, I was always learning as I went along, whether it was coaching qualifications, academic qualifications, vocational qualifications. I was, you know, sailing qualifications, whatever. I was always looking for knowledge and that's probably where I am now. I'm still thirsty for knowledge and understanding in sort of like extreme things. And I feel as if maybe a PhD is the way to go. And, and a lot of people have been very supportive as well to, to generally guide me in that direction. That's awesome. It's something I've thought about too. But uh, I think when you said like, you know, I've got a blank sheet right now, maybe that's one of the perfect time to do it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, uh, dare I say, I'm not getting that young, that much younger. So, and these things take time. Well, you're wiser now. Oh, well, that's the, uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right. Before we get off, I want to go revisit, you know, the, uh, purpose and, and the two charities that you're supporting. So it's kind of fresh in people's mind and maybe they can, uh, you know, go take some action afterwards. We'll link it in the show and the voiceovers too, but, uh, we just want to talk about, um, you know, your two charities again, before we get off. 
Yeah, so the first charity and the main charity really is the Special Air Service Regimental Association. And that's a military charity that um, basically looks after its veterans, specifically from the Special Air Service yeah. and the associated units around it. And they created a, a mental health program. It was a specific thread that they put through it to help. And it's, it, it's basically, they called it the Sentinel program because not many people like the word mental health. It, it conjures up all kinds of thought processes. And it's a peer support network amongst veterans and serving members. And it's not becoming a professional, you know, uh, in mental health. It's more of a handrail to the professionals and, you know, where you can signpost people. And so you go and do a, a mental first aid course, mental health first aid course. So you recognize the signs and symptoms and you understand where to signpost people. And I, I've done one of those courses, which makes me a sentinel. So I'm, I'm already a sentinel. Hmm. So most of the money that's going to be raised is going towards that program. And um, I've got to say the program has been hugely successful in helping veterans in the special air service that, that are out. Because if if we, I think I mentioned before, if, if we woke up one morning and was having a bit of a mini mental health crisis, not many people would, A, you'd probably find it quite confusing. And you may not know where to go and get help. You know, do you dial 911? Do you go to your local doctor? You know, or, you know, would your wife or girlfriend know what to do? Whereas having the peer support network from your friends, you know, they might pick it up on it earlier. Or you might think, oh, I'll, I'll ring die up and um, just tell him I'm not feeling too good today. And then, you know, you, you can signpost you for some help or, you know, at least have a cup of tea or coffee just to uh, talk it over. So that's the main, char the first charity. And the second one is St. Michael's Hospice. And uh, I'm not sure if you have hospices over there, like you know, but that's basically palliative care. And St. Michael's Hospice is Herefordshire, which is the home of the Special Air Service. And it's, it's like a home charity, and, and there's no one in the county of Herefordshire. If you imagine a county like one of your state, it's a similar sort of thing, but obviously smaller. And um, there's, no, there's no one in Herefordshire that hasn't had someone have sort of like some form of palliative care going through the hospice. So um, nearly everyone in the county supports it because they know someone or at some point, as I say, that either one of those charities is going to be beneficial to me or one of my friends or family like me. Well, that's great. You're right of the first part about like not a lot of people know or feel like reaching out and asking for help. And a lot of times it helps to, you know, have a, uh, have a peer around that you can, uh, that you can talk to. And we talked last time about the, the, I guess the first aid aspect of it too, um, which to me was actually really interesting, uh, you know, as a medic, but also like dealing with crisis you know, you deal with it at, at the point of, of, uh, you know, point of crisis, but then working into like a longer term plan and, and treating it differently at, uh, different stages. So really forward thinking and, uh, glad that somebody's out there doing something like it. No, it's, it's good. And, um, uh, I've not really heard of it from anywhere else at that scale. And, yeah. um, as I say, Matt, it's, it's, it's proven useful already. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming on our podcast for a second time. Uh, you've, I mean, absolutely legendary story and some crazy shit the first time that we, uh, that we got on. But, uh, again, this trip is, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, 
I'll talk to people about it like hey i know this guy and feel all cool myself <laughs> and uh we'll probably see on joe rogan at some point when uh when it gets a little more uh, traction no, it's been great chatting Matt, and uh, i've enjoyed both of them you know and there's been a bit of an adventure between the two Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Ian back on land, studying the mind and how it deals with endurance. If you're considering helping his cause, please head to roastsentinel.com and click the donate button. We're going to link that in the show notes as well. You can also go back over his journey on Instagram at roastsentinel to see some of uh, how it went before the documentary comes out. But when it does, we'll be sure to remind you about that too. We didn't do a commercial break this episode, but you can find out everything about us at thankyounowwhat.com. You can also follow our guests on our Instagram page at thankyounowwhat, where we preview some episodes too and uh, put some bonus posts up. If you'd like to contribute to the cost of doing business for the show, as well as support uh, some great causes like Ian's, you can become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash thank you now what that's also in the RSS. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. <laughs>